invite you now to turn with me to Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 8, which you may find in the back of our Books of Praise on page 525. Page 525. Here in the Lord's Day 8, the church's confession reads as follows. How are these articles, the, the articles of the Apostles' Creed, which we just heard from Kevin immediately before, how are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. So far, the reading of the church's confession. After the sermon, let us sing in response from hymn four. Hymn four, all stanzas in response to the sermon. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, in the church's confession in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, the doctrine of faith is spelled out for us, the doctrine of faith. And in that Lord's Day, the Catechism teaches us the importance of faith, why faith is necessary, as well as the nature of faith and what faith is. And why faith is important and what faith is and now in Lord's Day 8, the Catechism proceeds to look at the content of true faith, the content of faith. And that has to do with the what, what we believe, but more precisely, the what of faith begins and ends actually with the who of faith, in whom we believe. We believe in God, but who is God? We must know who he is. We must know our God. Our salvation lies only in him, not in ourselves. So faith looks outside of ourselves and looks to God. But how do we do that? For God is incomprehensible incomprehensible. That's the word that's there that we confess in Belgic Confession, Article 1, another of the Reformed confessions, the confessions of, adopted by the Reformed churches. God is incomprehensible. Scripture says, no eye has ever seen him. Elihu in the book of Job confessed that he was ignorant to speak about God. Aren't we all that way? 
we cannot fathom him. He is infinite. Our minds are finite and limited. His greatness is beyond our understanding. So can we speak of him? The answer is no. Unless the Lord has revealed himself. Only if the Lord has made himself known to us. Only if he has told us about himself. Only if he has manifested himself to us. And by his grace, this is what he did. Even immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned and and rebelled against him, he came to them and he promised them that he would not leave them in their miserable state forever, but he promised that he would rescue them. And he comes also to us through his word today, and in his word he has revealed himself and revealed his plan to rescue us, his plan of redemption for us as well. He has made himself known. He has manifested himself, and he has told us who he is. So when the Bible stands open, perhaps we have them resting on our, on our laps at this very moment, it is as though the Lord our God is saying, I am telling you about myself so that you might know me so that you might be reconciled to me. That's incredible. Holy God speaking to creatures of dust, bestowing his great promises upon us. That's the privilege given to you. What a gift. The Bible is yours not only to know yourself, but also to know your God who saved you. And so this afternoon, we'll look at how God reveals himself to us in his word as our triune God. And as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 8, and I've summarized the sermon under the following theme, we believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See two points. First, his triune existence. Secondly, his threefold work. First, his triune existence. This Lord's Day, Lord's Day 8 of the Catechism, is about the Trinity. Now, what enters into our minds when we consider the doctrine of the Trinity? I suspect that outside of these walls, the common reaction to hearing this doctrine explained would be a confused, huh? What did you say? I wonder how much also we inside these walls think the same. Or perhaps when we hear someone speak of the Trinity, we inwardly groan and think, how boring, how dry, how irrelevant. Let's focus on something else, a different doctrine, one that has more bearing, more impact, more practical value for our lives. This doctrine seems to be reserved for scholars and academics and intellectuals who get all excited, get all tickled pink by discussing these these complicated matters, how this all fits together. But for the common, ordinary man or woman, well, let's move on to matters that are more meaningful for mom 
church. But that would be, I hope to show you, a, a terribly mistaken response. For see here how the catechism doesn't shy away from this challenging topic. It begins explaining the content of our Christian faith as summarized in the Apostles' Creed by starting with one of the most difficult doctrines to understand. What a way to test if our faith is real and genuine. What a way to show us what true faith really is. Immediately after speaking about faith, we come to perhaps the toughest doctrine to grasp. Indeed, what is often referred to as the mystery of the Trinity. But this is not a mystery that we can know nothing about or to say nothing about. But we are able to speak of it because the Bible speaks of it. And we can only say what the scriptures say. Well, what do the scriptures say? Scripture speaks of one God. And scripture speaks of three persons. And if scripture says it, we must echo it. Scripture says that God is one. Think of the well-known words of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5 that we read from earlier. This is a confession which the Jews would, would regularly recite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But Scripture's teaching about God's oneness is not only found in the Old Testament, it's also found in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, Paul praises God saying, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. But Scripture also says that God is three in one. Think, for instance, of the Great Commission that Christ gave to his disciples at the end of his time on earth. In the last verses of the Gospel of Matthew, he commanded them to baptize in the name, singular, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so with each baptism that is administered, never does it happen without reciting the triune baptismal formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or think of the triune greeting we hear at the outset of the worship service, which we heard at the outset of this worship service. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. It's a reference to God the Father. And the seven spirits who are before his throne, a reference to God the Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Reference to God the Son. And then at the close of the service, we hear the triune benediction, the blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So these 
examples were not cooked up by the church. They were not imagined in the minds of men. So they come straight out of God's word. We could go to the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. Already there we find the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father created through the word. And the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. Or we may think of the passage that we read from earlier in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. In this chapter, we find so much evidence of the Trinity. It may help you to have your Bibles open to this passage to follow along with me. For in this chapter, we we read about each person of the Godhead each being distinct from one another, and we read about how they are altogether one. Already in the first verse, our Lord Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. Now, he would not call upon us to believe in him if he were not truly God. And then after saying in verse 6 that, Christ says that I am the only way to the Father. Then he testifies in verse 9 and following, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There we learn of such a close relationship between the Father and the Son that they are one. It goes on in verse 23. He who loves the Son will be loved by the Father. And the Father and the Son will come and dwell with Him. Verse 24. The word which the Son speaks in reality is the word of the Father who sent the Son. The Father and the Son are one. And together the Father and the Son are one with the Holy Spirit. See that verse Verse 16, the Son promises that the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 26, he says that the Father will send the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son. John 14, 26, here in this one verse, you find all three persons mentioned, all working in close conjunction with one another, all doing their different tasks, their different roles, and yet so close that they are in fact one. Three in one. Each person having his own work, while together working in perfect harmony with one another, our one true eternal God. And that's why the church confesses the Trinity. The Trinity, the word being a a compound word, As we learned about this morning with the word comfort, so also with trinity, tri-unity, stuck together in one. Tri meaning three, unity meaning one, three in one. Though we cannot find this word anywhere in our Bibles, the doctrine that is behind it is found all over the pages of Scripture. Unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity, as the Athanasian Creed puts it. There is only one God who has no rivals. 
Whoever says that there are two or three or a thousand gods is simply wrong. And whoever says God is made up in part by God the Father and in part by God the Son and in part by God the Spirit is also wrong for each of them is fully and equally God. Now, some people object to the doctrine of the Trinity by saying, I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't work mathematically or or logically. Some go even so far as to, to mock the Christian faith over the doctrine of the Trinity. For instance, Muslims ask, how can three be one and and one be three? One does not equal three and three does not equal one. And so they say, they accuse Christians that you Christians actually worship three gods. Well, if that accusation were true, that would indeed be blasphemy. But that accusation arises out of, out of a misunderstanding, for there are not three gods, but one God. And within that one God, within that one Godhead, there are three persons. And we would add that we don't work our way toward understanding the Trinity or, or any of our Christian beliefs through following intellectual principles or mathematic principles or following man's so-called laws of logic. No, as we confess in, in Lord's Day 7, faith is not based on any of those things. Faith is based on God's word and accepting it as true, accepting as true all that God has revealed therein. And so with regard to the Trinity, we humbly admit it is true. We, we cannot comprehend God. He is infinite. He is incomprehensible. We cannot understand Him. And we cannot understand the Trinity, for we are only creatures, and, and sinful creatures at that. But although we cannot understand it, yet we embrace it. We embrace it because the Word says it, and faith embraces all that the Bible says accepting it as true. We come now to our second point, God's threefold work. When the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in our Lord's Day, they are each spoken of in relation to to different aspects of our salvation. We see that in question and answer 24. The Father is mentioned in connection with our creation. The Son mentioned in connection with our redemption. And the Spirit mentioned in connection with our sanctification. That is not to say that the other members of the Trinity were not or are not involved in the work of the others. Or that their works are not interconnected. But the Catechism is emphasizing who is in the foreground with each different work. For example, we've already seen that all were involved in creation. The Father created, but He created through the Word, speaking all life into existence and being through the Son. 
as the Apostle John puts it in John 1, verse 1 to 3, in the opening words of his gospel, familiar words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then he says in the very next verse, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And already from the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters. And so we see all the members, all the persons of our triune God involved in creation. But what about in redemption? It wasn't just the Son involved, for the Father planned our redemption. And the Spirit applies our redemption. They work, you could say, hand in hand with one another. But the catechism in setting out these distinctions is is emphasizing who is in the foreground in each of these activities. Our creation, our redemption, and our sanctification. And so it tells us that it was the Father who created all things. He made the entire universe. Everything out of nothing. He, He spoke, and there it was. From the smallest creature to the to the billions of stars to the greatest planets in our galaxy. And he created man as the crown of his creation. You and me. Everything he made, he made good. He gave each of us our callings and through which to call upon him and, and praise him every day. And it was the Son who redeemed. Redemption is the language of slavery. It was the Son who sold himself into slavery for us, fallen mankind. He humbled himself and became man and and took upon himself our, our shackles and our chains. He made payment for us through his precious blood. He was the sacrifice that brought us grace and peace. And so he acquired and he purchased our redemption. And it is the Spirit who sanctifies. Here we can think of how the Spirit applies salvation. He makes sinners saints. He is not an impersonal force. He is our our counselor, as we read in, in John 14. He urges us to believe the promises that God has given us in His Word. He works in our hearts so that we receive the the salvation purchased for us by Christ. He breathes life into the dead, giving us new hearts. He nurtures faith and love. He turns our life of sin into a life of service to God. Now notice the repetition that we find in our Lord's Day this afternoon. Repetition is, as you, as you know, a, a form of emphasis. Catechism means to emphasize something. Well, if a mother calls out the name of her son or daughter more than once, the child will know that it's ever more important that they listen and, and obey. Well, where's the repetition in this Lord's Day? It's found in the word, our, our. See it there, our our creation, our redemption, our sanctification.
God did all this for us. He created us. All that we have, we have from Him. Think deeper about that. That then gives Him the right to tell us how we should live, doesn't it? He has a right to tell us what is pleasing to Him and what is displeasing to Him. That means He has a right to say, do not murder. Not just in action, but also in words. And He has a right to say, do not commit adultery. And mean by that, that the the marriage covenant must not be broken. That it is lifelong. For as long as you both shall live. And that man must not separate what God has joined together. And he has a right to tell us, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. So that we do not tear one another down. But that we build one another up. Defending and promoting one another in every way we can. And on and on we could go. God, our Father, has a right to tell you and me how we must spend our life. And He has a right to demand that we keep His law. To keep it fully. Since He made us. And there is a day coming when we will have to give an account. We will have to stand before him and he will be the judge who will ask us, well, what have you done with all that I gave you? And as our judge, he will either reward or punish you. Are you ready to appear before him? Ready to face his judgment? Are we ready to meet our maker? But not only does the Bible tell us about our creation also about our redemption. Though you and I are rebels, God has graciously provided for us a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Have you come to see your rebellion? Have you come to see how prone you are to to disobey the righteous requirements of God's law? And has that driven you to flee to the cross and believe in Jesus Christ as the one who died in in your place so that in him you could be saved our creation our redemption God wants us to know and believe that he has done this for us but we find that he has done even more he has sent his spirit for our sanctification have you come to see your need for the spirit Have you come to see that you are unable to change your own heart? That you need a new heart, a new life. The Spirit must lead and teach me. He must show me the beauty of Christ's work and the fullness of what He has done. This is the God we must come to know and believe in. John, in John chapter 17, verse 3 what is often called Christ's high priestly prayer, our Lord Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's incredible. That means the one and only God has revealed himself to sinners through Christ, so that they could have everlasting life. 
but there is another side to that as well. For if we don't know this God and don't believe in Jesus Christ, then we are not on the way to everlasting life, but on the way to everlasting death. And so let us be in wonder of this God. It is a wonder that we may hear of this God. Each Sunday, again, we have an opportunity to listen to a messenger of this God proclaiming a message not of his own making, not of his own imagination, but a message that comes from God himself, from his word. If that doesn't make us think twice about how we come, if we come to church on Sunday, then nothing will. The truth is that we don't deserve to hear about him. And we don't deserve to hear the gospel. But what grace it is that we can. What grace that we can hear about our Redeemer. And just think of the possibility of your car breaking down on the side of the road. And along comes a passerby who stops to see if you need any help. And he learns that your car broke down and he says to you, I'm a mechanic. And what's he saying there with those words? He's saying, I can help you. Well, similarly, throughout God's word, we hear that God is our redeemer. He is saying that he can help us. He can redeem us out of our slavery to sin. And even though we are spiritually dead and we cannot manufacture faith on our own, God also tells us of his spirit who can make the dead alive again by giving them faith to believe in him. If God did not reveal himself, there would be no hope for you or me. But because he has revealed himself, there is hope. He has shown us that our only hope is in him. So some mechanic won't stop at the side of the road to help someone who is in trouble. Some might drive on past and not look back. But God is not like that. He is willing to help. He is compassionate and willing to save. And he has shown us how willing he is to save by sending his dear son to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven. He is pleased to save sinners so that his greatness and his glory may be clearly seen. So look to him. Look to your triune God. We can go to him because he has come to us. 